0: is that if you spend time with God's Word, it will do things to you, improve you, give you wisdom and ability that you do not have in your natural self. This is our New Year's message. So I want to say Happy New Year. We're, we're one week behind in this church, one week behind isn't bad in life really, we could be a lot further behind than that I guess, so, but uh, this is, I want to obviously, you, if you've been here for any amount of time at all, you know in this church I always push New Year's resolutions and uh, setting off for Starting out another year, I'm told 41% of Americans set New Year's resolutions and 9% are successful at them. So that tells me that less than half of Americans even try. I'm hoping that we are above that 41%, that there is a desire in you to do better in 2023 than you did in 2022. And so I'm going to challenge you this morning on a particular area of your Christian faith that I think would be life changing. Why don't you stand with me, please, as we look at Psalm 19. The Bible says, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun." "...which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. There is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple." Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that we are privileged in the United States of America to have many copies of it. There isn't anyone that can't have their very own personal copy of the Word of God in America. That can't be said all around the world. Thank you for that privilege. Now, as we look into it this morning, I pray that it would be a light unto our our life, our path, our way, that it would lead us in every part of our lives and we'd be good students of it. Bless this time, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Our text this morning, we've read the entire Psalm of Psalm 19, but our text is going to be taken from verses 7 through 11, and we'll be looking at the, those this morning. There's not, no better group of verses about the Bible than verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 19. Some amazing statistics about the Bible. It is the best-selling book of all time. It is the best-selling book every year. In the USA alone, 50 Bibles are sold every minute. 72,000 Bibles are sold every day. 26 million are sold every year. The top three best-selling books of all time would be A Tale of Two Cities sold 200 million copies. Pilgrim's Progress sold 200 million copies. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings sold 150 million copies. If you have a million-seller book, that is incredible. Most authors that you read sell in the thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands. But boy, when you go over a million books sold, that is absolutely incredible. But the Bible surpasses that by far. The Bible has sold between six and seven billion copies. Billion with a B. The Gideons alone in their hundred year history, and I love the Gideons, in their 100-year history, have distributed 1.6 billion Bibles in 190 countries around the world. That's just one of the many agencies dedicated solely to the distribution of God's Word. More people read the Bible than any other book, and without question, it is the most important book in the world. If you were to go into history... And delete every reference to the Bible in our art and literature, in all libraries, in all art galleries, you would shrink the volume of our history in our libraries by one half if you removed all references to the Bible. Written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, as the Spirit of God moved the writers to put down what God impressed on them to say, it is truly a unique book. John 1 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in John 1.1, 1, 1, it is established that in the beginning was the Word. In John 1.14, it is established that the Word was Jesus Christ. So in John, Jesus said... In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we could say in God's word that God's word, being interchangeable with Jesus Christ, we could say that God's word is the way, the truth, and the life. Just as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When you're talking, when you say the word and you say, Jesus, those names could be interchanged because that is who he is. He's the Word, and he is Christ, and Christ is the Word. Satan doesn't mind you being a Christian. He doesn't mind you going to church. There are a lot of things that bother him, but he doesn't mind you doing many of the things that we do as Christians. But what he does not want you to do is to be a student and to memorize and to know God's word. Because the more you get to know God's word, the more you become like Christ. And Christ is who he has tried to destroy from day one and continues to try and do so. And he is the ultimate failure. But he's like, well, he's a failure. I won't compare him to certain things. I'll get in trouble if I do that. So. I believe many Christians, and this is where I'm going this morning, and, and uh, as a pastor, as a Christian, as someone that observes families and people, it is heartbreaking for me, and you've seen it as well, to see people that claim the name of Christ that say they believe like you and I do and so struggle in their life, not experiencing joy, not experiencing all that Christ has to offer. And for uh, there are times, and and my wife will testify to this, I'll get a report or I'll, I'll be made aware of something that just so jars me that I'll look at her and say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm all through. What we're doing is not working. And you become so discouraged. And you think, why in the world do things like this happen when it is so unnecessary? So I believe many Christians are not living the joyful Christian life because they have not adopted and incorporated in their life the life-changing message of the Bible, God's Word. In the ministry, we are constantly interacting with defeated believers who I believe claim the name of Christ but have not been transformed by the renewing of their mind that can only come from a right knowledge of God's Word. So this is more of a Bible study this morning than an actual preaching message. So you're going to need your Bibles this morning. I'm using a King James Version Bible. If you did not bring a King James Version Bible, that's, that's no problem. You can use a pew Bible in front of you. But I want to show you some passages from verses 7 through 11 in Psalm 19 that I think I, I just want us to do a little study this morning on this particular text. And if you're not using a King James Version, you could still probably follow along with me, but the exact words that I'm saying would be helpful if you saw them. Our text tells us of six things that God's Word does, okay? There's two in verse 7, there's two in verse 8, and there's two in verse 9. In verse 7, now I write in my Bible, some of you don't, but it helps me to underline certain things and circle things and different things, and so this passage in my Bible is quite marked up, but... In verse number 7, we have two names, the law of the Lord and the testimony of the Lord. In verse number 8, we have the statutes of the Lord and the commandments of the Lord. You following along with me? Do you see those? Somebody nod their head. It would be helpful. Thank you. Good. That's good. Okay. 7, we got the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord. 8, we have the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. In verse 9, we have the fear of the Lord and the judgments of the Lord. So there are six things that we're going to look at in reference to God's word. You know that I'm a three-point preacher, so we'll have three today, and we'll have three when I come back with this message. If I give you six things, we have, we have boys in our house, we have girls too. Girls are easier. No offense, guys, but if you give a boy something to do, You better ask him, what did I just say? Say it back to me. Well, no offense, Cornerstone, but this is like a room of boys here, and if I give you six things this morning, I'd do well if you could remember one of them, and I'm just judging you by myself, but after lists, and the Apostle Paul loves lists, he's got all kinds of them in his letters, but the fact is, if someone's given a list, it's not good, so I'm going to give you three now, three later, the three that we're going to look at, obviously, is the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, and the statutes of the Lord, now, along with those six things that I've just given you that you've forgotten half of them already, then we have the adjective or the descriptive word of each name. Obviously, the name was the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord. Those are the names of what is taking place, so the nouns, if you will, okay? Now we've got the descriptive word or the adjective. The law of the Lord is perfect. Your Bible says that. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. So we'll go over those six things over a period of time. But I was, I was talking to a preacher that you and I know and love, and he says, i got a message on that passage. He ask me last, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I, usually my statement of the answer is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the Bible. But I, with him, I'm, I'm a little more honest with him. And I said, well, I'm going to be in Psalm 19. And I said, oh, i got a I got a message on Psalm 19. He says, the word of the Lord is pure, sure, and the cure. And I said, I might use that. And he said, well, if you do, you don't have to say where you got it from. And so, obviously, I'm not using that. But that's pretty good. The word of the Lord is pure, sure, and the cure. And, of course, that was from Wendell. Now, it is, I have been thinking about him lately. And I'll share this with you. And I was going to write him a letter about it. But if he watches this message, I won't need to write the letter. And, um, but there is, I don't know why I enjoy his company so much. But I think it's this, is that I love being around someone that loves God's word and talks about it in a joyful way. When I was young, I wanted to be around someone that hunted and fished. We'd talk about those things in joyful ways. And, when, and then get, when you get older, you, you have we got, I got into cars. And I loved to be around someone that loved cars. And old muscle cars is where I'm from. And they got resto mods and all this stuff going on now, which I don't have money enough nor care enough about. But I, I'm just an old muscle car guy. And 69, 70 was just two of the best years in the auto industry where they weren't afraid to burn gas, put off emissions that we didn't care about. If you got behind one of those things, man, they just stunk up the road. Raw gas coming out the tailpipe. Now that's a real car right there. Okay? So you get into that phase in your life, and I've been there, but at this point in my life, my joy comes from talking about God's Word and trying to figure out the most effective way that we can share the life-changing message of Jesus Christ with anyone that will listen. That's the crowd I want to be around. I love that. So... The description of the name shows the verb and the action that it does in life. The life, the law of the Lord is perfect. What's it do? Converts the soul. You continue on with the passage, okay? Verse 7 The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Those are the three that we're going to look at this morning. I won't give you the other three until another time. But those three right there, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, if someone came to you and told you that for very little effort, and I'm not making this up, for very little effort on your part... He would show you a way that would add joy to your life, happiness to your family, peace to your sleep, laughter to your day, and years to your life. Would you be interested in that? Absolutely. I got good news. I can show you that this morning from God's Word. That's what the Bible can do for you, and I'm going to show you. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. David is speaking of the Torah, God's Word, the first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. He is speaking of the instructional nature of God's Word. Now, I'll be the first to admit to you that if I buy something, there's instructions with it. Men don't need instructions. You know, you just, it'll come to you. It'll be natural. We'll put that thing together. So I will be the first to tell you, if someone says, well, that's an instruction manual right here, my thought would be, well, I don't need that. I'm Stan Griffin. Well, you know what? We all need instruction. Say that with me. We all need instruction. And as someone would say, you could do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way. Okay? Now, what happens when we get away from God's word, we're going to end up doing it the hard way. Okay? But the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. As we look at God's word... That we have today, and thank God, God's word is complete now. Back in in the time of the psalmist, he did not have the New Testament that you and I have. All the direction and the teachings from the Apostle Paul and, and the disciples that were written. You and I are so much more blessed with God's word than they were in the Old Testament. We get the complete picture. They were looking forward to hearing about what we already know. And they were looking forward to Christ's coming, the Messiah, and all the promises of God, the Old Testament. You and I get to look back on that now and see it all clearly. They were just hoping for what you and I have already found out. They were looking forward to it. You and I get to look back at it. But all of us are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? So here we are this morning. The Lord, the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, conversion. God's word is the handbook for living. It's the instruction manual. It talks, it gives us our creed or what we believe. It gives us our character of who we are. And it gives us our conduct of what we do. When we obey it, it transforms us, it changes us, it converts our lives to be like the author. We used to speak of converts. It's a term that, do we, do we use that term, converts, like we did in the old days, if you will? It used to be we'd talk about converts in church. We're going to talk more about converts this year than we have in the past. New believers in Christ. They can only be made from hearing and obeying God's word. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. He's a new creature, converted. Romans 12.1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, or converted, changed. If you've known Christ for any amount of time at all, you are converted from what you are now. You've changed now. You are converted from what you were before. Now, conversion to different people can mean different things. When I was in the oil industry, the big fad was to convert from oil, to gas. That was a bad idea. (laughs) I got a cousin down here that hauls gas for one of the competitors that we were in. I don't even want to say their name from the pulpit, okay? So this is, I'm, I'm being, I'm joking here. It's not a big deal, but a conversion, everybody says, do you do conversions? Yeah, Christian, we do conversions. You can be changed with Christ, okay? Best kind of conversion. And then when we share our testimony, we're really telling the story of our conversion. I'll share one with you this morning that I think is very exciting to me. The name uh, Many of you, if you're familiar with singing or preaching, you've heard the name of D.W. Whittle, an American Civil War veteran, Major Whittle of the United States Army, and a well-known preacher thus details how he made the great change in his life and how it took place. Quote, when the Civil War broke out, I left my home in New England and came to Virginia as a lieutenant of a company in Massachusetts regiment. My dear mother was a devout Christian and parted me with many tears and followed me with many a prayer. She had placed a New Testament in a pocket of the haversack that she arranged for me. We had many engagements, and I saw many sad sights. In one of the battles, I was knocked out, and that night my arm was amputated above the elbow. As I grew better, having a desire for something to read, I felt in my haversack, which I had been allowed to keep, and found the little testament that my mother had placed there. I read right through the book, Matthew, Mark, Luke to Revelation. Every part was interesting to me, and I found to my surprise that I could understand it in a way that I had never done before. When I had finished Revelation, I began at Matthew and read through again. And so for the days I continued reading, and with continued interest, and still with no thought of becoming a Christian, I saw clearly from what I read the way of salvation through Christ. While in this state of mind, yet still with no purpose or plan to repent and accept the Savior, I was awakened one midnight by the nurse who said this, a boy in the other end of the ward, one of your men who is dying, he's been begging me for the past hour to pray for him or to get someone to pray for him, and I can't stand it. I am a wicked man and can't pray. I have come to get you. Why? Said I. I can't pray. I never prayed in my life. I am just as wicked as you are. Can't pray, said the nurse. Well, I thought, sure, seeing you read the Testament, that you are a praying man, and the only man in the ward that I have not heard curse. What shall I do? There's no one else for me to go to. I can't go back there alone. Won't you get up and come and see him at any rate? Moved by this appeal, I arose from my cot and went with him to the corner of the room. A fair-haired boy of 17 or 18 lay there dying. There was a look of intense agony upon his face as he fastened his eyes upon me and said, Oh, pray for me, pray for me, I'm dying. I was a good boy at home in Maine. My mother and father are members of the church, and I went to Sunday school, and I tried to be a good boy." But since I became a soldier, I have learned to be wicked. I drank and swore and gambled and went with bad men, and now I am dying. And I'm not fit to die. Oh, ask God to forgive me, pray for me, ask Christ to save me. As I stood there and heard these pleadings, God said to my soul by his spirit, just as plainly as if I had spoken, in, he had spoken in audible tones, you know the way of salvation. Get right down on your knees and accept Christ and pray for this boy. I dropped upon my knees and held the boy's hand in mine. As in a few broken words, I confessed my sins and asked God for Christ's sake to forgive me. I believed right there that he, had for, he did forgive me and that I was Christ's child. And Then I prayed earnestly for the boy. He became quiet and pressed my hand as I pleaded the promises. When I arose from my knees, he was dead. A look of peace was upon his face, and I can but believe that God, who used him to bring me to my Savior, used me to get his attention fixed upon Christ, and to lead him to trust in his precious blood. I hope to meet him in heaven. Many tears have passed since that night in the Richmond Hospital, And I am still trusting and confessing the Lord Jesus Christ and purposed by God's grace to continue doing so until he comes home. That is the conversion story of Major D.W. Whittle who God went on to use in a powerful way for the cause of Christ. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, changing lives. Number two, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord. To testify is to witness. God's word is the witness to who He is and what He requires. I played sports in high school. I was the older I get, the better I was. But the fact is, I wasn't very good in high school. But I did notice this I noticed that when I played ball with better players, it improved my ability. We had, one, we had one guy on the team that could play. The rest of us could not. But we had this one guy on the team. And if I hung out with him, I started doing things with the basketball that I never could have done before because I spent time with him. What's my point in that? Is this. Is that if you spend time with God's Word, it will do things to you, improve you, give you wisdom and ability that you do not have in your natural self. But it is critical that you spend time in God's word. It was critical for me to hang out with that other ball player. If I didn't, I would not pick up on his abilities. And you will not get God's word through osmosis. It won't happen with it just sitting on your coffee table at home and you walk by and say, we have a Bible. Someone said, David Jeremiah said this week or last week or whatever it was, Emily told me what he said. He said, if... All of America blew the dust off their Bibles. It would be the largest dust storm in history. And you know what? I'm afraid he might be right. So obviously it is critical that you and I, if you want God's word, if you want his testimony, making you wise. I don't know about you. I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I am not a smart individual. But it is God's word that gives us wisdom. Wisdom. God's wisdom. I'm not talking about the wisdom the world offers. I'm talking godly wisdom. Because there are other ways. Knowing God's word gives you wisdom that comes from nowhere else. 1 Corinthians 1.25 Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So obviously God's word is a powerful weapon. The more worldly wise the human race becomes the more ignorant we are of simple truth. I'm going to say that one more time. The more worldly wise the human race becomes, the more ignorant we are of simple truth. One old preacher said, we were smarter when we were dumber. And you know what? I I tend to agree with that. Here's another story of someone's testimony changing lives. One Sunday afternoon, Billy was strolling about the south end of the business district of Chicago with a half dozen baseball friends. The New York Giants were in the city at the time and several of them were in the party. At the corner of State and Van Buren Streets was an empty lot, which is now occupied by the Siegel and Cooper Department Store. Here a company of men and women workers from the Pacific Garden Mission were holding an outdoor meeting. Sunday... And his friends stopped to listen. The meeting soon took hold of their attention, and they sat down on the curb and heard the service through. Sunday confesses that the singing of the, the old gospel songs, the same his mother had sung in the little log cabin back home in Iowa, caught at his strings and set them vibrating in sympathy with memories of childhood days. A new spirit welled up within him, and created dissatisfaction with the life he was living. I want to stop right there for a second. Christian, if you and I are living like we should, it should create a dissatisfaction in what the lost people are experiencing. When the outdoor meeting was over, a young man named Harry Monroe, now superintendent of the mission, seeing that Sunday had been touched, went to him and invited him to attend the meeting at the mission two blocks away. You'll enjoy it, he said. You'll hear some things that will interest you. Won't you come? Sunday accepted the invitation and went. The usual services were held in the mission. There was singing and praying and earnest, heartfelt testimonies from those who had found deliverance from many kinds of sin. Then someone gave a short gospel talk that, though brief, was right to the point. The usual invitation to accept Christ was giving, for no meeting has ever been held in that mission without this being done, and there has never been a service when someone did not respond. Sunday listened eagerly and closely to everything that was said, and though his heart was deeply stirred, he did not respond to the invitation or in any way further commit himself, though when he left the mission, it was with a resolve that he would return again. Several nights later, he was once more in the mission and went again some four or five nights in succession. Then one night, when he needed help as badly as did the man at the pool of Bethesda, a voice that was like a breath from heaven aroused him, and he looked up in the face of Mrs. Clark, the wife of the saintly Colonel Clark, founder of the mission. She well understood his case, for she had helped hundreds like him into the kingdom. She talked to him like a mother, and where the wisdom given to her from above led him to where he had, could see the light streaming from the cross. Little by little, she brought him to see clearly that eternal life is God's free gift, and being such, it must be received as a gift through childlike faith in the finished work of Christ. And then... When the good woman had given him a few promises upon which she assured him it would be safe to plant his feet, he made the great decision that everyone must make for himself and took Jesus Christ as his all-sufficient Savior, promised compliance with all that God's law required of him, and then soon, very soon, his burden was gone. He knew that his name had been written in the book of life, and the peace that passes understanding came into his heart. That's the story of Billy Sunday, coming to Christ. And a little old lady, sharing the wisdom from God's word, changed his life. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Statutes are given for divine principles and guidelines for character and conduct. God created us and knows what is best for us to live the best way possible. His ways are right. They're opposing views to God's word. Satan pointed that out in the garden. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, "Is the way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. All you have to do is listen to the news or pick up the local paper, and you will see that what mankind is shoveling is killing people. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I know I've read stories this morning, but I want to leave you with one more story that is, is, uh, is very compelling to me. And I think this is what I want to emphasize so much this morning, is the importance of God's Word. And I want to draw the analogy from this story that is shared that is related to the hymn, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. I don't know if you're familiar with that song or not. We used to sing it when I was a child. It's one of the old gospel, old hymns, old gospel songs. Let me tell you the story related to Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. On a dark stormy night, when the waves rolled like mountains and not a star was to be seen, a boat rocking and plunging neared the Lorraine Harbor at Cleveland. Are you sure this is Cleveland? Asked the captain, seeing the light from the lighthouse. Quite sure, sir, replied the pilot. But where are the lower lights? They're out, sir. Can you make it? We must or we'll perish, sir. With a strong hand and a brave heart, the old pilot turned the wheel. But alas, in the darkness, he missed the channel, and with a crash upon the rocks, the boat was slivered, and many lives were lost in a watery grave. It was D.L. Moody preaching and using as an illustration this story that had first appeared in the Chicago papers. It was an actual account by the captain who had been one of the few fortunate enough to escape death. Behind the tragedy of that night story, by then known to most of those in the audience, a story of careless negligence, not intended to cause a tragedy, yet it did. Let me tell you, as it was relayed to George Stebbins, a close friend and associate, both of D.L. Moody and Philip P. Bliss, it was around the time that I had arrived in Chicago, which was 1869, that there appeared in the papers an account of a ship being wrecked on the shores of Lake Erie near Cleveland, Ohio. The account took place called Lorraine, which is a situated on the lake shore west of Cleveland. There was built a special harbor for relief of ships that would most certainly be wrecked if they tried to ride out some of the intense, dangerous storms that can hit large inland lakes. This harbor had a channel running from Lake Erie into a large basin, an inner harbor. Once ships reached this, they were safe. At the entrance to this channel were rows of lights which were lit at night and would show the ships where to enter. At the inner harbor, there was placed a large lighthouse. This was to help the ships which were far out. It seems that on the very day that the tragedy happened, the man who had the job of lighting the lower lights and keeping the lighthouse said to himself, I've been on this job for several years, and to date not one ship had to find the harbor at night. I just don't feel up to it today. And to go out and refill the oil reservoir of the lamps along the shoreline, I think I'll forget about them just for today. I'll feel better tomorrow anyway, and I just know that no one will need those lights tonight. And so when night came, he went to bed, little dreaming that in a matter of a few short hours his unconcern would cost many lives and burden his conscience for the remainder of his life with something he would never forget. That very night... A turbulent, destructive storm swept across Lake Erie. Some of the ships were able to ride out the storm, some were not. But none so tragic as the one that Mr. Moody described in his sermon, which was so close to safety, and yet because of one man's neglect. The song goes, Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore. But to us he brings the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor fainting, struggling seaman you may rescue, you may save. Dark the night of sin has settled. Loud the angry billows roar. Eager eyes are watching, longing for the lights along the shore. Trim your feeble lamp, my brother. Some poor sailor tempest-tossed. Trying now to make the harbor in the darkness may be lost. Let the lower lights be burning. Send the beam across the wave. Some poor, fainting, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. Mr. Bliss was in the audience that night. And as Mr. Stebbins later told me, Mr. Bliss said to him, You know, George, I had read the newspaper account, and I must admit I was shaken by the fact that one man's negligence should be so costly. But it was when I heard Mr. Moody use it as an illustration in his message, that night I cried my heart, Bliss, you are just as guilty as the man in the story. As a Christian, you are to be one of the lower lights shining brightly so that some poor soul tossed about on the sea of life may find safety and everlasting life in, in the haven that God has prepared. George, I couldn't dismiss the thought from my heart, neither from my mind, it so overwhelmed me that the very first night for next week I wrote the song the lower lights if you look at your text the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork say that with me the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork I'm going to paint this picture for you, and then I'm going to close. The heavens declare the glory of God, I believe, could be the lighthouse that God maintains, that everybody sees. It's declaring God's glory. There is no, not a lack of evidence of God. It's the suppression of the evidence that's killing us. If you just look with your eyes wide open, if you just look at an x-ray of your body, If you just look at the complexity of the universe, there is zero chance mathematically in any sane mind that evolution could ever produce what you and I see every day in God's creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. However, could the lower lights be God's word? Could the lower lights be what God has entrusted you and I to use, to share? to quote, to memorize, to let the lower lights be burning? Could that be our part for you and I to point people to a safe place in Jesus Christ? And is it possible that through our neglect of God's word, we've let the light go out? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Can we shine a light Without God's word, it is not possible. Folks, is the light burning in your life that can direct people to eternal salvation in Jesus Christ? Have-